This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 661 with Sherry Lead. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 661. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community. So be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Former litigator Sherry Lead currently operates an imperfectly perfect life, a professional mindset coaching business serving clients who are in those tricky middle age years, helping them create the life of their dreams. She is the author of the Friendship Flow Transformational Book Series, which includes the 50-50 Friendship Flow, Life Lessons from and for My Girlfriends, and Make Your Mess Your Message, More Life Lessons from and for My Girlfriends. Oh my goodness, we dug into so many things in this conversation. I am so incredibly grateful for the work that Sherry's doing, for the way she shows up in the world, the way she connects with other women. Oh my gosh, the way she transparently shares her stories and her journeys and just so many things. We could have talked for hours. I know you're going to find her inspiring and uplifting and you're going to want to hear more from her. You're going to want to go get all her books. So listen in to hear Sherry share. Her story of being adopted from Seoul, Korea in 1970 and the first wave of international adoptions by Japanese-American parents who were interned during World War II. Her parents' memories of living and working in internment camps. The impacts of her parents' internment on her upbringing. How she ended up growing her family by two children in less than one year. How adopting her daughter brought her full circle and seeing her own adoption journey her massive shift in identity when she left a career as a litigating attorney to become a stay-at-home mom, and the major struggle to maintain her sense of self, and the impact on her physical sense of self as she had double hip replacement from hip dysplasia and double mastectomy after a breast cancer diagnosis. Like I said, we covered a lot of ground here. Sherry has so many inspiring stories that make you just think about your identity, how you show up in the world, how you share yourself with the world, and how you more than anything else, connect with other women through your stories and all the different identities that you carry. So with all that said, please join me in welcoming Sherry Lead to the Shameless Mom Academy. Sherry, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here today. 
Yes, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this conversation. This will be a good conversation. There's, oh my goodness, so many layers to this conversation. So I'm just going to dig right in. We're going to go right into all the good stuff. So first of all, I always like to ask people to kick things off to have you share a little bit more about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what you're most excited about right now. Oh, sure. Let's see the most. Well, let me start with the last part of that. What I'm most excited about, because I was looking at this morning, I am finishing up my third book. And um, yeah, this is really exciting because I didn't plan to write a book when the first book came out. And this is (laughs) book number three in three years. Wow. In a series called the friendship series. But why I'm so excited is this series involved many, well, This is about all of my friends. And over the course of a three-year period, I met with, and I counted it just a few minutes ago, 144 women who are in my life. I met with them one-on-one to have these really rich conversations. So when you ask me what I'm excited about right now, that's what I'm really excited about is the culmination of these one-on-one meetings I've had with so many amazing women who are in my life. How beautiful. What a gift to have those conversations. Yeah, it absolutely, it started out as a little challenge for myself between my 49th and 50th birthday. And because I'm an oversharer, I was sharing (laughs) these dates on Facebook, on social media, and it sort of, well, it not sort of, it did, it organically grew into a book, which has now become a series. So wow, I'm just excited when I did these numbers of the people who've come into my life. Um, Oh, I bet. And I bet it was that a lot of like rekindling relationships that maybe you had not had as much time for or space for, or been able to devote to in a while and then being able to reconnect. Yes. And it was women that I had known for a lifetime and also women that I may have been more or newer acquaintances that I just recently connected with when we sat down, but there was something about that person that made me want to reach out and sit down for a one-on-one date. Wow. I love that so much. I love your curiosity too, around your relationships and making that time to sit down and connect and, you know, imagining just checking in with people and seeing where people are at. And that's, you have to be curious to do that. And like, that's curiosity and thoughtfulness and intention. And I think that's just really, really cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. You know, once you start, you probably know this from what you do. Once you start talking to people and asking questions, it's really hard to stop. It it becomes like free therapy. I think totally. Oh, so many of my interviews, I'm like holding myself back because I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to talk to this person for three hours and I have to limit it. So yes, I totally agree. Yes. Yes. Especially during the pandemic, when we've been a little socially isolated for much of the past two years, Absolutely, you know, taking time for these one-on-one meetings, they really were kind of a lifesaver for me. Oh, I bet. I bet. So I want to talk a little bit about your origin story and because you have this fascinating story of where, like how your life started out and how your family was created, how the family you were raised in was created. And then also the family that you created yourself. And so can you tell us a bit about your origin story? Sure. Well, I was adopted. I'm a Korean adoptee and I was adopted in 1970 after being orphaned in Seoul, South Korea. What my friends find most interesting, I think when they meet me is or more surprising is that I don't know my true birth date. And I think it actually bothers some of my friends more than it bothers me because, you know, some of them really love to look at their horoscopes and they wonder where I fall. But that, yeah, that was my, the start of my life. I was orphaned in Seoul, South Korea, and then adopted in 1970 by um, American parents, Japanese American parents, and raised in the Seattle area. Do you know approximately how old you were at the time of adoption? Yes. I was just about a year old. So you were little. Yeah. So developmentally it's, it's, you know, within a month or two, probably. Yeah. Fairly close. You were adopted as a a young child, a baby still, and came to Seattle and tell us a little bit about the family that about your family growing up? Sure. Well, my parents, as I mentioned, they're Japanese American. My dad was born in Seattle, Washington. And my mom was born on Bainbridge Island And they are a generation 
older than me, which at the time of my adoption, they seemed really old because they were, you know, in their forties or my mom would just have turned 40. And my dad was in his later forties, which nowadays doesn't seem as old. Yeah. Um, my, that's, but, my mom had my, me at 37 and my sister at 40. And I remember thinking like, mom, how could you, like, how could you, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> and now it's so normal. <laughs> yes. I, right. And so, but at the time when I was growing up, you know, there's a generation between us. And so mm-hmm. my parents were, my mom was probably in middle school and my dad was a young adult when World War II broke out. And both of my parents were interned during World War II because Japanese Americans on the West Coast were interned. And mm-hmm. uh, this was even, neither of my parents had ever been to Japan at that point. And actually they, neither of them ever visited Japan or really knew Japanese. So this was um, taking my mom out of her Bainbridge Island, you know, school, my dad who grew up in Seattle also um, actually having never left Seattle, they were interned for um, a few years during World War II. Wow. This seems when, when I think about this, it seems like so many lifetimes ago. And when you talk about this being your parents, it's such a stark reminder that it wasn't that long ago. What? Yes. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say my mom now is uh, she just turned 93 in January and Bainbridge Island, where she was born, was the first area of the U.S. where they interned Japanese Americans. There were a lot of Japanese American Mm -hmm. farmers on Bainbridge Island. And so her family actually was the second family to be interned. And so she's been brought back to different grade schools to speak about her experience. But, yeah, she's 93 and she was one of the younger Japanese Americans who are interns. So that generation, their voices are, they're becoming a lost generation. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what your mom has told you about being interned and what that was like and what that life was like? Sure. You know, I actually know more from my dad because he was Mm. older. So my mom was younger. And so she, for her, the experience was to be with her friends. Okay. Uh, She actually comes from a family of 10 children was eight older brothers, seven who were served in World War II. So at some point during World War II, while they were interned, they were able to leave the camps early if they would serve in the U.S. Army. And so seven of her brothers did. But she remembers her experience. Which is as a- so horrific. Like you're allowed to leave if you'll serve this country that's interning you. Yeah, you know, there's a picture that exists actually of my mom's mom, my grandmother who had, was given seven yellow stars that she had in her, I don't know if they called it a barrack in the internment Mm. camps that represent all the sons that were serving. Uh, So that was pretty powerful. But for, you know, for my mom, she actually, she remembers playing with her friends and being closer to her friends because they're all together. Mm. And she actually, she remembers the soldiers being kind to her though, because they had soldiers guarding the camps. Okay. Uh, So that's her memory. My father, who was older, it really affected him. He had jobs in camp. One of his jobs was to ditches for those who passed away when they were in the camps. He also had cleaning jobs. One of the jobs he had was to teach kids in the camp. And it turned out in his career, he became an electrical engineer later on. But his second career was teaching because he found that when he was interned, he actually loved being able to teach children. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like 
a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30 day money back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS, S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S, AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. How long were they in the camps? You know, I wish I knew exactly. I want to say a couple of years okay. uh, total. My dad was able to leave a little early to work on a, I believe it was a potato farm okay. uh, because they start to need uh, farm workers or factory okay. workers. So they allowed early release for some of the Japanese Americans to work in the factories and to work on farms. Mm. How did their internment affect you and the next generation? I think it it affected the next generation myself quite significantly, especially with my dad's experience because he never felt comfortable in his skin Mm -hmm. because of his experience of being Japanese American and what he faced. We didn't travel as a family. He wasn't comfortable traveling. So we barely left the Seattle area where I grew up and he felt uncomfortable being seen in large groups of Asian people because he felt that he stood out even more. Mm. So he trying to protect me, raised me to, I guess, for lack of better words, assimilate a little bit more. But to see that, like that that was his protection, but maybe you didn't see it that way. (laughs) Yeah. But to pull away from being Asian, I guess, you know, and to really embrace the identity. So that, you know, that gets you into a little bit of an identity crisis. And it just, it's such a reminder that, you know, as parents, if we don't sort of work on our own stuff and our own demons and all of that, we pass it on to our children, even, you know, if we have the best intent. Absolutely. Did you have siblings as well? No, I was raised as an only. Okay. So then there's also that you probably, whether it was like conscious or subconscious, you probably were carrying a lot for your parents as much as they were trying to protect you. You also, I'm wondering if you felt some protection against them, like as the only child, you're probably carrying some stuff for them that maybe you wouldn't have had to carry if there was multiple kids. Yes. I think, you know, only children, they do, they carry the responsibility. And yes, I think I have about an only this child. These are the things yeah. I think about. <laughs> and I think about this now too, as my friends, you know, I'm 52. And so a lot of my friends, my peers are taking care of their parents now. And it is different for only children. And I think we think about this, even when we're younger, we always have that idea that we're the ones that are there for our parents. Yeah. Absolutely. 
you are an adoptee who adopted your first child. Can you talk about this coming full circle and what led to you adopting if you're comfortable sharing and what being the mom of an adopted child has taught you about your own adoption? Sure. Well, my husband and I, I met my husband in law school. We actually uh, will be celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary this year. Oh, congratulations. What a milestone. Oh, thank you. It's, it's 25 years is a long time. It's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> it is, especially raising kids. And so we thought we were both practicing law and we figured that, okay, if we get pregnant, we knew we wanted kids and we decided, well, if we get pregnant, great. And if we don't, let's just start the adoption process because we knew we were, we decided we would want to adopt internationally. And we knew the process at the time would be about two years in length. Mm -hmm. And so we decided to start with the adoption agency that I was adopted through and see where that led us. And we did not get pregnant. It took us about two years, but when we came back, we adopted from China. When we came back two weeks later, we found out I was pregnant. So we we had two babies in one year. Holy cow. I have goosebumps because it's like everything you wanted, but not like quite that soon. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. It, it was a lot to become a mom, yeah. <laughs> to become parents all at once. Yeah. That was so how far apart. How far apart are the children in age? So my daughter also doesn't know her birth date, but they estimated her at 14 months of age when we adopted her, which would okay. put the two, uh, let's see, they're about 18 months apart. But the difference is when she came over, she was only 14 pounds at supposedly 14 oh months of age. Oh, oh my goodness. So we're not, yeah, we're not sure if her birthday was correct or she was definitely malnourished. Mm. Uh, it turned out to be a blessing to have the kids so close together because we had the newborn. We were able to catch some developmental delays that she had a lot earlier because we saw the baby develop. And what an interesting gift. I've actually had other friends in that circumstance, not in terms of the international adoption piece, but having kids really close together in age and then recognizing like the older one, not hitting milestones because the younger one is starting to hit them. And those are things that like, wouldn't have been caught otherwise, or wouldn't have been caught until, you know, way later. And then where there was then an opportunity for earlier interventions, but oh my goodness, that's a lot on your plate to have two little ones so close in age and then having one have some additional needs as well. It was, and I was still actively, I was an active litigator at the time. And so I had to take two maternity leaves in one year. So I had to cut a new maternity leave that I had scheduled in half so I could use the other half later in the year. Oh my gosh. <laughs> These are the logistics we don't think about in advance. <laughs> like, how do I take two maternity leaves in one year? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about when you went through the process of adopting your daughter, did, what did that bring up for you related to your own adoption? Did it bring up old stuff and make you think or see things in a different way? Yeah. You know, as parents, I think just raising kids alone and when they reach certain ages, we think of ourselves at that age and what we were going through and having an adopted child and seeing it from the parents' perspective, the one of the first things I noticed as you, you know, even back in preschool was that she would have to, she would explain or have to explain her reason for being in a family to even strangers. And I remember doing that myself, even though my parents were Japanese American and I'm Korean. So we don't, you know, it's not like an interracial uh, family, right. but even with that, because my parents were older and they had a distinctly Japanese name. And I would always say I was Korean. I remember as a little child explaining to strangers and justifying why I'm in that family. Um, and I saw my daughter do that as well, even from the age of preschool age. And I thought, well, that's, you know, it's the first time it really hit me that, yeah. wow, that's a big burden for a child to carry, to always have to justify why she's in a family or why he's in a family. And I imagine for, you know, families with interracial adoptions that, you know, that obviously happens even more. So that was one thing. That's kind of the first thing I noticed. And it's interesting because as my daughter questions her identity and especially, you know, the piece of of not knowing her exact birth date or where do these certain traits come from? They're the same questions that I have too. Uh, The nice thing is, is that we're able to talk about them Mm -hmm. and relate to them. She used to call us cardboard 
box buddies when she was younger because we were oh, both gosh. our records say we were both found in cardboard boxes in, in parking lots in our respective countries. Wow. Which seems alarming in the US that yeah. babies would be found in cardboard boxes. But was that commonly how children ended up in orphanages? So I'm considered the first wave of international adoptees, which began after the Korean War because of there were so many Euro-Asian and Amerasian babies mm-hmm. left. And even though I'm younger than those babies for, directly from the Korean War, I'm still considered that first wave. So that first group of Korean adoptees, some were left in baby boxes. There was a documentary done about it where there were actual designated baby boxes around Korea for people to leave their babies. So that wasn't uncommon. And, you know, of course, in China, when my daughter was born, they had the one child policy or sometimes depending on where you lived, the two child policy. So it was against the law to have an additional child. So they had to leave their children And a lot of times it would be in a box or someplace, Mm. but usually in a place where there is a lot of traffic. I've had other guests on the show who were adopted from China and yes, as a result of the one child law and oh my goodness, there's so much, there's the circumstances of either being in a cardboard box, whether it is in because of the one child policy or it's because of war And to have to go through that process of being a child in an orphanage and then through international adoption. And my other guest was was adopted into an amazing family and you were adopted into an amazing family as well, it sounds like. But there's still like a decent amount of trauma in all of that. Yes. And I think I recognize that also becoming a parent, you know, having a biological child Mm -hmm. and seeing that anytime he made a little noise, I picked him up or, you know, I quickly responded to him. And he, you know, from day one, he always was safe and his caretaker was, you know, as always my husband and I, it did not change. And I know for myself, by the time I was adopted, even though I was adopted at about a year age, I had five different caretakers in five different homes Mm. and my daughter had at least three. And so being a parent of a biological child and seeing the difference there, I can't imagine what my biological son, what effect that would have had on him had he changed so many hands within just, you know, a year's time. So even just being a mom in general Mm -hmm. took me back to my adoption experience. I bet. So you mentioned that you were a litigating attorney (laughs) while you had these two babies. Oh my goodness. So can you talk a little bit about that career and going and the decision that you made? So I know you ultimately moved from being a litigation attorney to being a stay-at-home mom. Can you talk about that decision, that transition, and then some of the challenges in that? Sure. Well, I was a litigator for about 14 years and I started out as a criminal prosecutor, and then I moved to work as a civil uh, defense litigator for a large insurance company, and that's where I was when I had my two children. I was planning to continue to work. I never planned to be a stay-at-home mom. We had hired a nanny, but as it so happens, our daughter, we found out, had some significant delays in her development, and so she had a number of therapy providers that our nanny was taking her to, and we would, you know, skip work. Neither my husband and I were getting a full work weekend at one point. Mm. So it came down to, you know, deciding that one of us needed to stay home. And I felt strongly about me being with the kids. It was a joint decision, but I really felt like I needed to be there. Mm. So the decision actually wasn't thought through (laughs) as to what that would be for me to stay at home. And my goodness, was it a shock? (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it interesting? Like things in concept versus like in theory, you're like, of course I should be the parent, of course. And then you're doing it and you're like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah. It was hard on so many different Mm -hmm. levels. You know, I was somebody who went straight through from high school to college, to law school, to practicing law. So that was my identity. Yeah. And just like many people, right. Our our identity gets wrapped up into what we do career wise. Mm -hmm. And most of my colleagues, one, most of my colleagues were male, were men at the time. And so all of a sudden I'm a stay-at-home mom and now I'm with a whole different group of peers and there aren't any men around and they're all women. Many of the women who love staying at home with their kids and were so good at it and were more unprepared than me. Um, 
And so the, it was a really a real loss of identity that I felt when I started to stay at home with the kids. And I struggled to find my self-worth in that role. And it was and still continues to be the hardest job I've ever had. That is, I think, a common way to describe staying home with children, mm-hmm. the hardest job ever. Can you talk a little bit about that shift in your identity and your sense of self when you walked away to essentially from one career to and into a different one? And especially in the role of litigating attorney and being a person of power in the room and a person of influence in the room and the only woman and among a room of men. And I'm just imagining so much comes with the identity that's wrapped up in that. And then to be in a house with two small children and not so much of a grown up audience or connection, what happened to your sense of self in that during that time? Thank goodness there wasn't so there was social media at that time <laughs> because my goodness, I can't I can't imagine what posts I would have posted. Um, I probably would want to like delete all of them at this point mm-hmm. because there were days where I, I felt like I literally was not going to make it. I'm kind of joking, but it was really hard. And I would do something socially when I started staying at home. There was a period of time when people would ask me, "What do I do?" and I would actually just say. I don't do anything. I stay at home. And I would use that sentence. Oh, I don't do anything. I stay at home. And I would laugh about it. And they would say, Oh, you do, you know, that's really hard and have that type of conversation. And at some point it clicked in for me that I need to stop saying that because I'm devaluing myself and I'm giving myself the wrong message. And I needed to change my mindset of what it was to stay at home and who I am and where my value comes from. Yeah, absolutely. It reminds me of, I've been in the room with women before when they're like, like, I'm not working right now. I'm just a mom. And it's like that just a mom. And you're like, Oh, like that's the hardest thing. It would be so much easier to just go work (laughs) and clock in and clock out and not like all of it is hard. But when we use that minimizing language, it's so dismissive of the hard work that we're doing. Oh, it is. And the state, you know, at least when I was practicing law, I could prepare and control and, yes. and, and do things. You know, my first gut reaction or knee jerk reaction, when I start to stay home and sign my kids up for everything. And I was going to take them to every class and we were going to have this busy, busy schedule. And of course we'd go to some music class and I'd my kids are not paying attention and I'm doing all the hand motions and wheels right? on the bus. And then we go to a dance class, you know, I have two little kids and I'm basically doing these, you know, silly moves and they want to do something else or eat Cheerios. Right. Um, so I was not only did I lose my identity, I felt like I was failing you know, yes. every day because I'm going to all these classes I've signed up for. My kids don't want to participate. I sing off key. I mean, <laughs> Oh my gosh. I did. I signed my son up for a music class and he could have cared less about, and the room was always really, really hot. It was like on the third floor of this building, this like hundred year old brick building. And the sun would just like beat in through the windows in the afternoon. And I just remember being in there like sweating so much and trying to make it super fun for him. So it was like a music and dance thing. So you're kind of moving the whole, you're moving around the room the whole time. And I remember doing it a few times. And then my husband had to go because I was gone or something. And he came back. He was like, hell no, I'm never doing that again. That was awful. Vinny does not care about it. And he's like, I do not need to dance around that room and sweat all over the place. And then I was like, why am I doing that? (laughs) Like, we just need to not do that class anymore. Like, it's okay if we just don't do that thing. But I was like, no, this is what we do. Like, we have to go to the music class. This is what the good moms do. I know there's so, we put so much pressure on ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt-free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows.
Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. So I want to connect a few dots on identity just Mm -hmm. a little bit more because I can see this trajectory around identity and curiosity around identity, which I think any adoptee would have, but you go from being starting out as an adoptee to having parents whose identity was so significant because, you know, being interned is such a significant thing in the U S and then having them, you know, especially your dad wanting to assimilate as much as possible. And then to being an adoptive parent and being a litigating attorney to stay at home, mom, there's all these senses of all these different components of your identity. And I'm curious when you were raising children and you were in that role of then adding on that role of mom, I'm curious, were you conscientious about identity and like, who am I and where am I going and who am I becoming? And what does all this mean? Or, or did that start to come later? That really, for me came in my forties, I think. And so my kids would have been most almost. So, you know, that really came to me, it started to come to me more in my forties, as far as being comfortable, I guess, in my skin. And it, Mm -hmm. it began more, you know, so I had the issue of trying to find my identity when I, all of a sudden I was, I was this attorney and then I became, so that was my identity. I didn't have to worry about finding my own value. I had the title that. Right. And that title, like that carries a lot of weight. (laughs) Yeah. I had that title that gave me value. Then I became a stay at home mom. So where was my value? You know, I tried just to be a good stay at home mom. (laughs) You know, I didn't find an identity there. And then in my late thirties, I all of a sudden was diagnosed with hip dysplasia. I had never had hip problems in my life and received a diagnosis at 37 that I needed a double hip replacement. Oh my goodness. Um, And for me, that was a big blow because that was something that old people did and not younger people. And so that was a identity issue for me there is you know, oh gosh, how do I define myself now? I can't, there are things I can't do. I used to be very physically active. And that being said, the hip replacements actually don't hold me back as much as I thought that they were going to be when I got that diagnosis, but it was a blow to my ego. Mm -hmm. So that started me on my path, actually, of trying to get a hold of who I am and what my identity is and why is this happening. And then in my 40s, I received a diagnosis of breast cancer. Mm. And that really pushed me down this path of finding my identity. And so, and that's what these obstacles do. A lot of times you, these obstacles are the things that lead us to something greater and they're great teaching moments. And through that, I started journaling and really discovering who I am outside of any title, or I guess, you know, you, you're shameless mom. I think of shameless. When I think of shameless, I think of judgment outside of any Mm. judgment. Yeah. Agree. And really appreciate that. I want to talk a little bit about, thank you for bringing up your hip dysplasia and breast cancer, because those absolutely layer onto these pieces of your identity. And can you talk a little bit about the impact of going through major health events when you're still relatively young and what that was like? Yes. So, you know, with identity too, identity also is our appearance, And especially, you know, as women, as much as we want to say that, you know, we'd like to believe that appearance doesn't matter and it's more what's inside the truth of the matter matter is appearance in our society and as women is very important. And so is youth. Mm -hmm. And so having both of those things 
for me, psychologically, it was very difficult. It felt like it was taking away from, you know, youth and also my sexuality as a woman. I mean, you know, lose artificial hips and, and I had a double mastectomy. Mm. There's a feeling that, you know, that takes a lot away from your womanhood. Yeah. Um, so finding identity also when things are affecting you aesthetically, let alone the health issues related to it adds on a whole new layer as well. And those, you bring up such a great point because I think when I think of, you know, double hip replacement and double mastectomy, I think of just like, oh my gosh, that's just so much to recover from and to like work your way back from when you bring up the piece, the physical, how you're seeing, how the world sees you, how you see your own physical body that can really mess with your mind. <laughs> There's a lot in there. Um, even if you're in a great headspace, it's just a lot. It is because you have these physical scars now that you see every day. Uh, you know, I see every day, every morning. And so you don't forget, <laughs> you don't forget right. that. Yeah. A lot of people, you know, it's, when things happen to you like that, it's a trauma and people talk, when the, people go through trauma, a lot of times they'll talk about themselves as two different people, almost before the trauma and after the trauma. Mm-hmm. And so you ask about identity and there is a piece of identity for me, even though I see this all as a whole and what has made me, there is a piece of identity where I see myself as a before, you know, this happened. And then after this happened. Yeah. I can absolutely see those like sliding door moments of this is who I was before. And this is who I am now. And there's something distinctly different between the two. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you tell us words you would describe yourself now after going through so many different layered life experiences that I think I interview a lot of people and you have a lot of layers that are really unique in many ways and stories that not have not been represented on the show. And so it's one thing to have someone who's, you know, had breast cancer come on, but, or someone who's an adoptee. But when we look at these layered pieces, all of a sudden, now we have this picture of someone who has a really unique identity. And I think what's really cool about that is, is that like, you do have this really unique identity, but I also think the other piece of this is that all of us have so many layers. And so some of our layers are, you know, look vastly different than the majority of other people. And some of them don't, um, but I'm really curious how you would describe yourself now having been through and lived the life that you've lived to this point. Yeah. I love that you said that because I know you're asking about myself, but just as a side note, that was what was interesting with me with 144 different women who were in my life, (laughs) even close friends. There were things because of these meetings and the questions I asked, there were things I learned about them that I had no idea that they were carrying. Mm -hmm. So you're right. We all do, you know, even though I could point to exact events or specific things are sometimes are a little unusual for, you know, my age, you're right. We do all have these different things that have happened in our lives that have made us who we are today. So when I think about who I am, what this has brought me to tell you the truth, I've never been happier And I've heard it before, especially with the cancer diagnosis that a lot of people who've survived cancer have said that they're happier afterwards. Um, Interesting. And I didn't know that. That's super interesting though. Yeah. And and, in cancer. So, and that's, I don't want to say that that's necessarily the norm at all because cancer is such an individual experience and the treatment's individual, but you know, it's made me all these different things I feel were placed in my life for a purpose. And it's allowed me to relate better to other people and to listen a little closer. Um, And it honestly has made me appreciate life much more. My favorite quote, which comes in in the form of a question is, if today were the last day of your life, would you be doing what you're doing now? That's such a good question. And that's such a big question. Yeah. And it it is because of these things that had changed overnight, you know, from the, you know, at some point with my adoption, I was, you know, although I don't remember it, I was left uh, from, you know, I was orphaned. My parents one day were living in their homes and the next day they were on trains being interned because Japan, you know, declared war on the U S I mean, that happened basically overnight for them. Yeah. You know, my hip replacements, I just injured one hip in a class exercise class. And all of a sudden I'm 37 being told I need two hip replacements. So 
I've learned that life can change. And that's what we've all learned in the last two years during the pandemic, life can change on a dime. So all these things have made me one happy, (laughs) you know, I wake up happy for the day and it's made, reminded me not to waste a moment. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So your latest book is make your mess, your message. Tell us about the book. Sure. So in that book, this idea came during the pandemic like you, I'm in Washington state. So when our stay at home orders came down, we had just happened to start a remodel on our house. So that came to a screeching halt. We had (laughs) our half our, most of our house was blocked off with my kids all of a sudden are home from school online. My husband's working from home. Our two large dogs were here and I started taking master classes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Love it. And one of the master classes I took was by Robin Roberts. And she said in that master class that her mom taught her to make her mess her message. Mm. So I thought, well, you know, I'm stuck here. Why don't I go ahead and make individual Zoom dates with my girlfriends and ask them that question? What is that? Me- what is the mess that became your message? Mm. So during the course of the year, mostly when we were at home, I had individual Zoom dates with 51 women and I asked them that question, what is the mess that became your message? And this book is their story. And at the end of every story, there's a little place to journal. Uh, So it's kind of written as a self-help coach, like a self-coaching self-help book. Mm, I love it. And if I recall, you told me that Rose Wetzel, is that the book that Rose Wetzel's in? It is. And her mess to message, which is incredibly great. So Rose Wetzel is an athlete from Seattle, as you know, and she's been on the show. She was on the show a while ago. Yes. A ninja warrior, Spartan racer, a professional obstacle racer. She's amazing. Yes. And her story was that she grew up in a home. She has a lot of siblings and her mom (laughs) liked to collect items uh, for lack of better words. So she grew up in a home that had physical messes that she had to navigate, literally navigate as she was growing up. And so her, and also being one of the younger ones, if not the youngest in her family, she was, sometimes she was left and they forgot to pick her up and she would have to navigate that mess. And she said as a professional obstacle course racer, she, a lot of the professional racers that do obstacle course racing tend to be older racers as opposed to the track racers. Mm. And that's because they've learned to navigate, you know, these obstacles and they know that obstacles are going to be there, but they don't worry about them so much until they get there. And they know that they have the skills and tools to navigate those obstacles. Mm -hmm. Like just taking one obstacle at a time instead of being worried about the whole game. Yeah. And that, that's such a good analogy for life because we know Mm -hmm. that obstacles are going to be there. It's a part of life, but we can't be paralyzed worrying about what obstacle may appear. But what we can do is realize based on our past messes that we have the skills and tools to navigate whatever, you know, life throws our way. And those obstacles aren't there to stop us simply to detour us and send us on the path that we should be on. Right. And those obstacles and those messes, I think just so often give way to us becoming like the next better version of ourselves. But when we're in it, we're just like, why is this happening? It's not fair. It doesn't seem right. I mean, we could say this about like everything related to COVID, but then you get a certain ways out of it and you're like, oh, like now I can see how that made me stronger, more resilient, more able to connect with other people or be empathetic with other people. Or it gave me a new way to chart a new career path or explore a new hobby or talent. And so there's always these things we can see in hindsight where we're like, oh, now it makes sense, like how that thing could work for me instead of happening to me. Yes. And there's so many of the women that I asked. And because when we go through our messes, we're there just trying to survive. We often don't take time to take a look back and see what we did and what that message was from that mess. So when I asked this question, a lot of times it was the first time that many of the women thought about, Hey, well, what was the message there? and Where did it get me? And it was Mm. pretty empowering to even just do that piece of the exercise. I love it. Oh my goodness. Sherry, this has been so just really, really interesting. I want to thank you for all of the pieces of your story that you've shared with us today, because we've gotten to touch on 
some really personal moments from your life that I think are going to have really big, big impact to our listeners. So thank you for all the ways that you shared and showed up just vulnerably in this conversation. I'm so grateful. Can you tell people how you're currently showing up as a shameless mom? Sure. Well, as I mentioned, when I think of shameless, I think of lack of judgment without judgment. And so that's something I really worked on when I was working on that identity piece is to try to pull away from judgment, judgment of others, being afraid of judgment from others and um, judging myself. And so I think that's how I'm showing up now, or that's my goal as far as showing up as a shameless mom is to try to live the best I can or the closest I can without judgment of myself, others are worrying about judgment and mirroring that for my children, especially my daughter. Mm, I love it so much, so much. Thank you so much, Sherry. So tell people where they can find you, where they can find your books, where they can connect with you online, all the good stuff. Sure. Well, my business name is An Imperfectly Perfect Life, which is also my website, animperfectlyperfectlife.com. And I'm a, on all social media platforms under the same name. And my books are on Amazon and other places books are sold, but Amazon's always kind of the easiest at this point. Got it. Okay. So we will link everything up in the show notes. People can connect with you via your website, via social. We have all the links right here. And then we can, and also they can get your books over on Amazon. So if people go to shamelessmom.com, click on the episode with Sherry lead, they, you can get all those goodies right through those links. Oh my goodness, Sherry, thank you so much for your time and for your story and keep writing your books. I love the work that you're doing. And I'm just, I'm so grateful for all the ways you're sharing your gifts with the world. Thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Co, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, you'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts.